If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 35 as we conclude tonight the story of Jacob. Genesis 35, it's on page 34 and 35 of your pew Bible. Jacob's life. Jacob's life has been one struggle after another, hasn't it? He was born fighting with his older brother. Literally in the womb, he was wrestling. It was his fighting with his twin Esau that ruined his reputation and forced him into exile. He then went north and wrestled with his uncle, Laban. The conflict between those two men was so intense that it almost broke out into open warfare. You may remember that Jacob's time with his relatives in Syria in the north ends with a formal and much needed treaty agreement or covenant between Laban and Jacob, promising not to come after each other, essentially. Closer to home, there was even struggle and wrestling in his marriage as his sister wives, Leah and Rachel, fought each other for supremacy. Rachel even names one of her children Naphtali, which means to wrestle. For she said, quote, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. This fight will continue into the life of Joseph, who is hated precisely because he is the favorite of his dad, being the child of Rachel, Jacob's true love and favorite wife. Many of us feel close to Jacob. Many of you shared that with me as we've studied his life. We relate to him because like him, we wrestle constantly with God and with our own lives. At times, it seems that we can only ever learn the hard way, the way Jacob seems to learn things. And we wish things could be clearer, straighter, simpler that we could be more obedient, that we could get God's purpose and plan the first time instead of the tenth time. But we're a lot like Jacob, if we're honest. How wonderful to know, then, that God is adaptive. He knows how to minister to strugglers as well as with those who are calm and easygoing. We see this so clearly in Jacob's life, don't we? At the height of Jacob's spiritual conflict, God appears to Jacob as a wrestler. No one else in the Bible has an experience like this. It is specifically designed. It is handmade for Jacob. Jacob wrestles with God just as he has wrestled with all of his life. Eventually, as we saw, Jacob simply hangs, hangs lifeless almost on the angel of the covenant, Christ and angel form and refuses to let go. Jacob is a fighter. He's a fighter, a man of conflict, slow to learn his lessons. But he has one great quality, one God-given grace that sets him apart. Maybe some of you have this too. Jacob, for all his many faults, wants, wants the blessing of God. He won't let go of God. Where other, maybe more peaceful men would have given up, Jacob persists. Jacob is something of a bulldog, but he's God's bulldog in the end. 
It's a credit to God's amazing grace and power that he was able to use that stubborn strength of Jacob and transform it into holy perseverance. Finally, in the end, his wrestling found its true its expression, its true purpose. As we saw, Jacob clung to Christ with the same ferocity he fought Esau and Laban. Immediately after that night of wrestling, Jacob survives his reunion with Esau. You'll remember he bows to Esau and is reconciled to his older brother. He has God's greatest blessings and he re-enters the promised land. But remember, nothing ever comes easy for Jacob. Although he had obeyed God and returned to the land, he didn't go to Bethel as he had vowed to do. Instead, he tried settling in Shechem. This halfway obedience, this partial obedience, cost him dearly. His only daughter, Dinah, was defiled by the prince of the land, and his sons, in fierce vengeance, murdered the city and plundered it. When we left Jacob last week, he is in terror for his life. He didn't approve of his son's violence and now he fears that the people of the land will crush him. But as we'll see in chapter 35 tonight, God uses this sin to dislodge him from Shechem and return him to full obedience. And that is how his story completes with full obedience to God. You can remain seated. It's a, a long reading. We're going to read all of chapter 35, Genesis 35, as it brings to a close our study of Jacob. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the Lord who answered me or answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak, Below Bethel, so he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you 
and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrathah, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's, Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adir. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we pray that you would make your word clear to us and that you would open our hearts to receive it. Take away our stony hearts and the distractions of our world and lives and help us to give ourselves now to study your word, to understand it, and by your Holy Spirit to have it applied to our lives and thoughts. We pray that you would be about this work, that Christ might be glorified and out of your great love for us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Chapter 35 really is the end of Jacob's story. Jacob will appear in the background in coming chapters. But after chapter 35, the focus really switches to Joseph as God's plan begins to work through Joseph. As it is the final chapter dealing with Jacob, it probably shouldn't surprise us that it functions to tie up many loose ends in that history. On a spiritual level, though, this chapter is so much more than just a random group of final events before we switch to Joseph. In this chapter, Jacob is called to full obedience. That is something he has struggled with up till now, something we often struggle with. And then when he obeys and seemingly kind of goes all in in obedience, the covenant is renewed with him just as his father passes away. I want you to see three things with me then as we study the text tonight and as his story comes to a conclusion. First, I want you to note with me in verses 1 through 8, the holy pilgrimage 
that Jacob undertakes a pilgrimage of obedience to Bethel. Second, in verses 9 through 15, see how God renews his covenant with Jacob. And then lastly, in the final verses, verses 16 and following, see how God reshuffles, if you will, or reorganizes the covenant family. So look at these things with me tonight. First of all, the holy pilgrimage to Bethel that happens in verses 1 through 8. God here in verse 1 commands Jacob to keep his vow and return to Bethel. It all begins with this great command, sudden command, really, in verse 1 to Jacob. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Not at Shechem where he was staying, but go dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. If you've been with us for our study, you will recall that Bethel was the place where Jacob spent the night when running away from home to escape his angry twin brother Esau. There in a vision, God showed Jacob a great stairway going up into the heavens. The Lord Jesus stood at the top of the stairway and angels ascended and descended on it, taking up his offerings symbolically to God and bringing down God's blessings to Jacob. Jacob called this place an awesome place, and he vowed on the spot to worship God there if he returned safely one day. Now God kept the promises he made that night. Jacob did come back to the land of promise. He came with children and many possessions. But as we saw last week, Jacob settled for a halfway obedience, a halfway obedience. He re-entered the land, but instead of going to Bethel, as he had sworn to do, and building a worship site there, as he had sworn to do, he settled in Shechem and bought land and seemed to settle down. He may have stayed there much longer, but his daughter was attacked by the local prince. We saw that last time. And his sons retaliated with brutal violence. Now, God in no way approved of any of this. It was sin. In fact, in the words of the Bible, it was an outrageous, that is a foolish and indecent thing to do. However, as God often does in our lives, he used this tragedy to force the issue with Jacob. He came and commanded him to leave and made it uncomfortable for him to say. Jacob was to settle at Bethel as he vowed to do, at least for a time. He was to make his offering to God. In the commanding words of Psalm 50 and many other Psalms, he was to offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform his vows to the Most High. Now, God doesn't need, understand this, God does not need Jacob's offering. And Jacob doesn't stay forever at Bethel. He's only there for a time. So why is God dislodging him from Shechem and demanding he keep his promise? Well, if you've been a Christian for any number of years or some years at least, you probably can sort of guess the answer. It's not that God needs anything from Jacob. It's not that God needs Jacob to go to Bethel and do what he promised. Rather, it's that Jacob needs to learn obedience and faith. 
God is always pressing us, isn't he? Through tragedies, hardships, and blessings, he's pressing us to believe and to obey all the way, to obey all the way, even when we try to pass off on him partial obedience. The next verse makes it crystal clear that this was a time where full obedience was desperately needed in his life. Another step needs to be taken. Jacob needs to keep his vow, and he needs to lead his family spiritually. He recognizes this and acts on it in verses 2 through 4. Look at those verses with me. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now it might surprise us as modern Christians to see all these idols and rings suddenly come into the picture. Wasn't Jacob, the Jacob who wrestled with Christ, a believer? Where did all the pagan paraphernalia suddenly come from? There are a couple important answers to that question. First, remember that Rachel brought her father's household gods with her when she left Laban's house. She may not have used them for worship, but she did bring them. Also bear in mind that Jacob's household is quite large at this point. He has many servants and his sons have workers as well. And not only that, but remember that Simeon and Levi, two of his sons, had taken many of the women and children captive from Shechem after having killed the men of the town. And they no doubt brought their images with them. Whatever the reasons, it was the normal thing. As hard as that is for us to understand today, it was a normal thing to do in those days. Household idols were common. That is how you interceded with the gods. That was how you got better from illness or how you summoned the rains for your crops. In many ways, and in many cases, possession of the family idols, the family household gods, meant that you were the heir to the family estate, and that you could converse with the ancestors. Jacob's family, sadly, were people of their times. But Jacob testified to them and reminded them of how God had been with him and the people responded by giving up all their trinkets and idols. Not only that, but notice that they were to purify themselves, verse 2, and change their clothes. This is, if you're not familiar with it, this is the language of the priesthood. This is priestly language. They were to consecrate themselves set themselves apart for a holy pilgrimage to Bethel. In Exodus 19, about the same time maybe this is being written, Moses will call on the people to do the same thing when they meet God on Mount Sinai. They are to put away any of their household idols that they had brought from Egypt, and they are to give themselves unreservedly to God. This was to be symbolized by washing and putting on clean clothes. Israel practiced these acts of washing 
and clothing throughout their life. Every time they went through this process, they were reminded in the most powerful way, a tangible way, that they were to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. These same ideas and images are for us today. Did you know that? We come into the church visible by baptism. That's how you enter into any Christian church, how you begin your journey in a church. And what is baptism? But a sacred washing that marks us and our children out as distinct people in the world. Paul, a man deeply planted in the Old Testament, often used these concepts to encourage the New Testament church. Remember how he told us to put off the old man and put on the new man. We're to clothe ourselves in humility, Peter says. We are to put on the whole armor of God. And Revelation speaks of those who've washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. And in First and Second Corinthians, Paul reminds us that sexual immorality defiles the Christian who is a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. These words are as much for us as they were for them. We are a priestly people. And as they now turn their hearts and set their faces to full obedience, to go to Bethel, they just consecrate themselves as a people to serve God and God alone. Finally, in verses 5 through 7, we read how God led them all the way. And as they journeyed, the text says, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. As Moses wrote this, these words, his audience would recognize this pattern. God would lead the people into Canaan one day in the exact same way. We're told in the Bible that a holy fear or holy dread came upon the inhabitants of the land. They didn't have the will or the power to fight. When Jacob finally arrives at this place, guarded all the way by God, he renames the place El Bethel, El Bethel. Before, it was simply Bethel. That means house of God, the, the place where God is. For Jacob said at that time, God is in this place. That's how ancient people thought about God as being located in certain areas. But now you see, after 20 years of wandering, Jacob gets it. God is not in one place like the false gods of his day. God is God everywhere. So the place is renamed El Bethel. That is literally the God of the house of the God. The God who's in this house was the God everywhere, if we could put it in uh, simple English. So do you see how important these uh, verses are and, and how they show us a change, a real change and conclusion to Jacob's story? It's really the conclusion we've been hoping for and waiting for all along. He's come back to the beginning. And finally, he's leading his family spiritually. He understands that they are a holy people distinct from the world. It is a holy pilgrimage. And more than that, it's a full obedience 
a complete commitment. So see in verses 1 through 8, that holy pilgrimage. See second in verses 9 through 15, and we'll go quit more quickly now, that God immediately renews his covenant with Jacob. I love this. Uh, Jacob is called to actually obey fully. By God's grace, he, he does that. And God immediately appears to him to encourage him. That is so often, uh, brothers and sisters, the way God works with us. He, is, he loves encouraging his people. But he will often step back for a moment and call us to obedience first so that our faith is stretched. And that's exactly what happens here. And you see in verses 9 through 12 what the Lord does for him when he obeys. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Syria, Aram, and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give you the land to your and to your offspring as well. For sake of time, especially with communion tonight, we won't go through these verses in detail. In past sermons, we have done that, and we've talked about what these blessings mean. There is a lot here, but what I do want to remind you of tonight is that the blessings laid out by here by God are not just random thoughts. They are the blessings of creation that you find in Genesis 1 through 3. They're the blessings of creation. God made Adam, and immediately the first thing he does with him, the text says, is he blessed him. He blessed him. It means more than saying to someone who just needs bless you. It, that's such a trite understanding. It is a deep and powerful thing when God blesses you, right? Because God doesn't wish for things. He says them and they're true. So when God blesses you, it happens. It has happened. It's definitive. It's decisive. It's life changing. Adam experienced that. God blessed him and then he went out and everything he did was blessed. And God is now renewing that creational pattern with first with Noah, as we saw using these same exact words, then with Abraham, then with Isaac, and now with Jacob. He's reestablishing and establishing his covenantal and creational blessings with Jacob. So here in this chapter, as Isaac is dying... These promises, just as they did before, they moved from Abraham to Isaac. Now they move from Isaac to Jacob, to the younger twin, as God keeps his word and now will bless him and give him his inheritance. So Jacob is clearly presented here as the heir of the creational blessings that Adam forfeit through his sin that have now been handed down by grace to Abraham and Isaac and now come to him. By restating Jacob's new name, Israel, God reminded him and confirmed again that he is a new man after his wrestling with God at Peniel, and that he is a man of grace and a man of promise. And it must have been an incredibly powerful moment as God in verse 9 through following appears to him and works in that way. See thirdly, lastly then, in verses 16 to the end, 29, God reshuffles the covenant family. Some events take place that really begin to set the stage 
uh, for Joseph and all that we're going to follow in really the rest of Scripture. It begins with the death of Rachel and the birth of her second biological son, Benjamin. Rachel died near Bethlehem, and to this day, her tomb is one of the most sacred sites in Judaism. Giant concrete walls, and you can go online and take a tour of this. Uh, Giant concrete walls protect Jewish people as they travel uh, to this site, to the place of Rachel's tomb, and they worship there and pray. Young women especially go there. Uh, seeking a child or a husband because they remember Rachel and her romance with Jacob and her struggle to have children. Now, in Rachel's struggle to have Ben, Benjamin, and bring him into the world, she initially names him Ben-Oni, you see in the text, son of my sorrow, or maybe son of the strength of my sorrow. Many years later, Herod Remember, King Herod will kill the infant boys in the area of Bethlehem in a failed attempt to kill Jesus. And the scripture makes the connection to Rachel's tears and her suffering at that very same location as she brought Benjamin into the world. But that brings us to what Jacob does. Jacob renames him, not Benoni, son of my suffering or son of my struggle, but rather Benjamin. Ben Yamin, Ben meaning son, Yamin meaning right hand, the son of my right hand. This is the last of Jacob's children. And with Benjamin's birth, we have the nucleus for the people of Israel. A second major event takes place in the family uh, that we need to understand. In verse 22, we're told that Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, slept with one of Jacob's four wives. Bilhah. He did this probably as a way of asserting his authority. Like his father before him, he looked for a way to grasp the birthright and ensure his possession of it. Absalom did something similar, if you remember, to David by sleeping with his concubine. Believe it or not, this horrible deed has real relevance for the New Testament. Reuben, by doing this, was disqualified as the leader of God's people. So son number one, Reuben, could not be the leader of the Israelites. Son two and three, Simeon and Levi, had also been disqualified because of the brutal violence we saw last week that they placed on Shechem. And they took that terrible vengeance. So if sons one through three, in God's plan, God's purpose, cannot be the leader. Who does that leave? Well, the fourth son. And what is his name? Judah. And so Judah is given the scepter and becomes the father of David and ultimately the father of Jesus. Finally, Moses records in these verses the 12 sons in verses 23 and following, and then ends by recording the final major moment in the life of the family, the death of Isaac. Verse 29 is very hopeful. Moses writes, he was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. That language, old and full of days, is the language of blessing. Remember weeks ago, I know it was months ago, we studied as Abraham's blessings were given to Isaac, and I actually 
broke down those individual blessings. And God said, I'm going to bless you, Isaac. And here uh, Moses is reminding us that God keeps all his promises and that Isaac lived a blessed life and died under God's blessing. And, and every parent here will understand the power of this. He lived to see his two sons reconcile. What a wonderful blessing that was. And together, living in peace, Esau and Jacob bury their father. The Bible is adamant that God has a plan for each of us and for our families. It's sometimes hard to remember that. Our lives seem so ordinary. We eat, we sleep, we work, right? People are born in our families. They die in our families. People sin in our families, sometimes in terrible ways. Jacob's life was full of ordinary moments. There were a few extraordinary visionary moments. But in his long, long life, mostly it was ordinary moments. And yet it was all leading to this chapter. It was all part of a plan that God had to bring Jacob to this moment. So that as Isaac is dying, there is a man there to take up the banner of faith, to believe the promises and to lead God's people in a new age. You can almost, almost by faith, watch as the blessings pass from Isaac's dying hand to that of Jacob. Decades in the making, decades in the making, Jacob is finally ready to represent the people of God on earth. God's story, God is in control, and he brings it about. Now step back with me for a moment. We've come to an important moment, I think, in our study of the life of the patriarchs. Joseph's life is going to sort of be its own unique thing. We'll get to that starting next week. But I want to take a moment with you and pause and think about these three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to share with you just two great uh, takeaways that I, I hope you take with you from all of the sermons, all the discussions we have had about these three men. Two things. First of all, I am so grateful, and I hope you are, that God chose this section of scripture for me to preach through during COVID and really over the last several years. As our society is rapidly falling apart morally and changing very dramatically, um, we are feeling more than ever. And I hear it from you. I hear it from everyone I listen to in the Christian world in our country. Uh, we're feeling more than ever like pilgrims. Like we are living a strange and weird way of life that we have to help watch our children every second because of what's around them. I mean, I could tell stories of, of things that are being said and done right now that I never, I did not believe I would ever see in my lifetime. Um, I read this week just in a Catholic um, periodical how uh, Planned Parenthood went into a public school in Washington State with 11-year-olds and instructed them on how to have sex with other children their age and informed them they could have abortions and other procedures without their parents' knowledge. This was like General Assembly in their schoolroom. These are things that most of us didn't think we would ever live to see. And as these things keep happening, and that's just one out of dozens and dozens of things that we could name, right? We feel what we're supposed to feel, which we are pilgrims. If you're a Christian, you're a pilgrim. This is not our home. They are not going to like us. 
Uh, now, we need to be as loving as we can and winsome as we can, but we are under threat. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fundamental struggle those men went through all the time is they never fit in anywhere. If you read the book of Hebrews, as it reflects on their lives, what Hebrews tells us about them is that they sojourned. They never owned the land. They never totally belonged. They always had to worry about who are my kids going to marry because I don't want them to marry the people of the land. And what if the people of the land get violent with me because I don't do what they do. I don't follow their customs. I don't worship their God. What if they come and kill me? Remember, that's why Abraham pretended Sarah was his wife. Jacob was afraid of that. They were all afraid their whole lives because they knew there were pilgrims. And being a pilgrim meant trusting God every day to protect you, to lead you, to guide you, to help you as you raise your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. It's, it's tough being a pilgrim. And we've seen that, haven't we? Week after week after week as we've gone through this. Our pilgrim identity. I hope you take some strength from that. That what you're going through is not odd and unusual. It's not something God's not prepared to deal with. It's not unprecedented. God has been doing this for a very long time. This is part of our identity. We are a pilgrim people. This is not our home. This is not where we belong. Second of all, and I think uh, in many ways more encouraging, and, and many of you have said this to me, is we have been helped by studying these men because we see ourselves in them. We see not just what's going on in our world and our pilgrim identity. At a personal level, we see our struggle. Many of you have come to me and said, I really relate to Jacob. Several of you have said that. Uh, and I know why, and everybody always explains, I know what they're about to say. We relate to him because he learns the hard way. And we see in our own Christian lives that pattern, don't we? God teaches us something. We get to a point of realizing we need to trust him with something or obey him in something. And what happens six months later? We struggle again. And it's like, why can I not get the lesson the first time? Why can I never seem to get the lesson the seventh time or the tenth time? Why does it have to be such a struggle these men teach us, you know, Abraham pretended his wife was his sister more than once. Even after God kind of dealt with him about it, he did it again. Sound familiar? <laughs> what a wonderful set of stories, the lives of these three men, because we see how patient God is, how persistent he is. He knows how to love us, to care for us. And we're also encouraged to be reminded we're not the only ones that struggle with these truths. We're not the only ones who are struggling with our faith. But God in his love and his power is able to help. And just as he took Jacob and over 30, maybe even 40 years, transformed him from that selfish young man who tried to get the blessing the wrong way to the man you see here in this chapter. If you're a Christian, he's in that same plan with you. And, and we want it all to happen tomorrow. I get it. I, I want it to happen tomorrow, too. But the reality is it's going to happen over 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, 10 years. I often tell you, I know I've used this phrase a lot, but it, it's worth repeating. We want a battle. You know, a battle's over in a day or two. God wants a war. We want a battle. God wants a war. But, you know, God's equipped for a war. He knows how to use all of those things to bring about his glory. And so see how Jacob is transformed. See how Abraham and Isaac are transformed over a long period of time because God is faithful. I pray those are your two great takeaways as we step now away from these three men 
God's faithfulness to pilgrim people in a broken and fallen world and his patient working in us throughout our lives. This is a great time then to come to communion because this table reminds us of how God feeds us and cares for us in the wilderness, that we are a pilgrim people. This table reminds us of that and that he loves us and he is with us as he was with Jacob. Let's pray now and prepare our hearts to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Father, as we come to this table, we come as the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who are naturally wayward, who are struggling with uh, the brutalities of life, the sin and darkness of our world. And then just at the moment when our eyes are focused on what the world is doing, we suddenly become aware of our own darkness, our own sin, and it is overwhelming. So, Father, we pray that through the table tonight, you would encourage us and remind us of your love and patience with us, that as you were with our fathers and, and walked with them and helped them, so you are with us, and that though our world be a very dark place, uh, yet Christ is in it, just as he was at that first communion. Remind us of these things and encourage us, I pray, as we turn to the table and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.